I'm Zach Abramowitz, and I am Legally Disrupted. So listen, these are edited. I'm one of these people, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all in to do it. But the funny thing is, do you know who I learned quality production from? You. You can ask Jason Barnwell. Years ago, after you did one of the Microsoft Innovation Days, I remember thinking, wow, it really had a professional look to it. And that made such an impression on me that I have made that a big part of what I do with my webinars. I've tried to up my game just a little bit in terms of production value. I remember thinking, I'm like, wow, this was the production value of what you did. And you did it remote, which was duly impressive. So very, very much learned that from you. That's awesome, man. I could geek out on that. I mean, that, that goes back, I don't know if you know, but I left the practice of law to go become a documentary filmmaker. So I started my own documentary film company back in the day because I had sort of that creative itch and wanted to tell stories through a visual medium. And so I learned just by trial and error that. And so it, it's very hard for me to do. And I don't say everything I do is high production, but I try to do it because just what you had, just what you described, it's, it's so much better. And quite frankly, the bar is so low in, in the legal So market. low. It's so low with us. All you got to do is a little bit of a background. <laughs> yes. I, I often wonder because people will get on with me. We'll be like, wow, I feel like I'm on the radio right now. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going for. Oh, shoot. Did you freeze up on me? What is going on here? What happened? Hello? Oh, it's me. Well, you'll see this editing. Well, you know. You can control what you can control, my friend. The irony of that moment, it, it, it's too much. It's too much. It's too perfect. It's too perfect. Like, I think we got our cold open. Discounts rise, law firms fall. We've expense accounted through it all. But when push comes to shove, I will bill you for my junior associates to remind you of my love. La 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 On this week's episode of Zach Abramowitz's Legally Disrupted, episode three, I check in with the one, the only, Professor Josh Kubicki. He is director and professor of the Legal Business Design Hub and Entrepreneurship Program at University of Richmond School of Law. He is also the co-founder of Bold Duck Studio. He is the author of the surgingly popular email newsletter, Brainiacs, which helps lawyers understand the impact of AI in their profession. Before that, he was the chief strategy officer at Seiforth Shaw. So dude really knows what he's talking about. We talked about AI. We talked about its impact on the profession. And we discussed the role of who we think are going to be the real winners in this AI revolution, entrepreneurial attorneys. So without further ado, let's get disrupted. First of all, it's been super interesting just watching like the development of Brainiacs. I I've been following your email courses since even before you were doing that. Give me like a sense of, because you, it's very good. Like you did one on the business of law yep. and I was like 85% of this, I totally knew already, but I felt like you were able to really fill in 15% of what I didn't know. And that was with the business of law course, really, really strong stuff. So I've got a bunch of questions about it, but first, let me just ask you, what what drove you to do that in the first place and start putting that content out? Two reasons. I mean, two real basic reasons. One, many people out there in the legal marketplace don't know 85% of it. They may know 10, they may know 20, they may know 50%, but we talk about those things in a shallow way. And by the business of law, it's like breaking down the law firm economic model, the terms we use to talk about, at least it's very US centric. I do reference some UK terms here and there, but how we just talk about the economics and financial models of law firms and the different roles and all that. And, you know, I started teaching in law school full time. I've always been an adjunct, but I took on a full time faculty position right before the pandemic. So totally immersed in that ecosystem. And regardless of what law school I'm at, we're not talking about any of this stuff to law students. And, and here we are entering the modern legal era. We can break that down if you want. And these students just have no sense of the economic realities in which they're likely to practice. And most law students and most lawyers will be in a private practice environment. And most private practice environments are still on a traditional economic model. So that was number one. Number two is I, I love building and making things. 
I'm not a coder. I'm not like an engineer, but I've always been called to explain things. Goes back to my documentary film days. Explain complex things in a simple way. And I'm like, okay, I've learned, I've been in this business long enough to know, go where the customer is. Don't force them to do it Josh's way. And we live in our inboxes. So I was like, I'll just create an email course. How, see if I'm good at that. I have no idea if I am or not, but let's create one. Right. I'll make it free because I'm going to learn. That honestly was the catalyst. Yeah. I, just, you must be like an adherent of uh, the Feynman technique, right? I, no, please educate me. I've you don't even know what I'm it is. And that, that's no. so interesting. It, it's based on the idea that in order to learn anything, you basically have to be able to get to a point where you can explain it to a seven-year-old. And it, okay. it was a longer process where you sort of start off by vomiting everything you know onto a page. And then you go and you read a variety of sources. And then you come back and you revise your previous brain dump into a very, very simple to follow narrative. I'm shocked that you're not, you're, it's like one of those things, like if you read it, you'd be like, oh, I've been doing this all these years. I didn't realize there was this kind of Jim Bro framework to doing it all. Well, it's so funny because, I mean, so it might be related, but like the, the curse of knowledge. So, one of the hardest things that I've had in my career, there's a big difference, stark difference between being adjunct faculty and being full-time faculty and not being pejorative or class. There's just a difference of expectations and oversight and governance. And when you're full-time, you've got to be game on to act, behave, and model the way full-time faculty behave and, and all that. And so your pedagogy, which is sort of the thesis and philosophy behind your class, behind the experience you design for learners and in any environment, whether I'm doing executive ed or I'm in a law school, regardless of the environment that you're teaching in, the curse of knowledge, something that is so intuitive and, and you do every day to be able to pull that out and to your point, explain it to someone who doesn't have the context in a meaningful way, it's a really hard thing to do. So I love that you gave, you just taught me something new. What the Feynman, what is it? The Feynman, the, the Feynman technique. And we'll get into prompting in a bit, but I will tell you <laughs> that one of the tools that I've been using recently to kind of get chat GPT, not always to talk so much like a robot. And I find that it, especially when you're creating marketing materials, it'll kind of go into this very vomiting marketing language. Yes. One of the ways I've been getting it out of that, like a minor jailbreak, is I ask it, are you familiar with the Feynman technique? And then it lays it all out for me. And then I say, okay, awesome. I would like for you, for any time we're in this thread, to use principles of the Feynman technique. And, you know, it's been like weeks on that same thread, and I come back to it, and I see it, it looks like it's not using it. I'll remind it, hey, do you remember what we talked about with Feynman technique? Yeah, yeah. And, and I find it does a really great job of this. And I, I think that's, you know, so critical to be able to explain, especially in like a world where you and I are now having to explain transformers and vectoring and embedding and all these terms that are like a little bit tricky for someone who's not deeply technical and understands math very, very well. And by the way, I get this from my partner. His background is in math and physics. And yet when he gives explanations, they're not pages long. Right. Very, very simple. And he under understands this as well. And like when I saw that someone who understands math and physics is able to give simple explanations, then I realized my, my explanations don't need to be super long and complicated. That shows a poor understanding. You've got to be able to convey it simply. And I think it. I, I've been thinking about this a lot again, because trying to explain large language models to myself can sometimes be tricky. So getting it down to that sort of seven-year-old explanation, I think is fantastic. I think your newsletters read that way, whether you're discussing the business of law, I feel sometimes in the best of ways, like I'm reading Wikipedia, which I think is what everyone should be going for because it's super totally. easy to read. It's so funny. There's a paradox. So I, first of all, I appreciate, I deeply appreciate that because people think of a newsletter and they think, oh, well, you're just, just going there and it's top of mind. It's it's not. And I'm not trying to make it more than it's not. It, it's a very deliberate way of communicating. And knowing who your reader is informs that. And there's a paradox. I believe they're probably out there, but certainly in legal, there's a paradox that I always struggle with. And I'd love to get your feedback on this, too. We have a certain customer segment 
whether it's lawyer or business leader in legal, who, if you speak too plainly or too simply, will judge that you don't have the credibility and authority to speak at their level, right? They'll be suspicious that you know what you're talking about. On the other hand, if you use too much industry speak or technical terms or jargon, then they discredit you too because they just think you're bloviating. And it's this constant, it's an internal struggle as a writer, as a communicator, like, okay, I've got to balance this. I can't oversimplify. So I've got to like occasionally show my cards a little bit like there's some technical competence here. And I do that yeah. in Brainiacs. And every time I write that technical stuff in Brainiacs, like I've lost the reader. That, they're totally going to like click out of the newsletter now and that's it. But I always remind myself, there's a segment of reader that's actually going to lean in at this moment. So with every edition, I'm trying to like vacillate between those two things. Yeah, it reminds me there was a great Y Combinator video that I recommend to entrepreneurs where it describes the difference between how to speak to an investor versus how to speak to someone in sales, right? If, if yeah. to a customer, right? So when you're speaking to an investor, you want to stay away from any jargon because they don't know this industry. The whole point of like why you're coming to them, you're saying, hey, listen, there's this industry that you're unaware of. Here's this, here's the way it's done currently. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Here's the better way to do that. You don't want to go to them with tons of jargon because all you're going to do is alienate them. You want to tell big picture stories. You want to focus a lot on your why. On the other hand, when you're talking to customers, you generally speaking kind of want to meet them where they are. And if you start explaining to them, well, you know, there's something called e-discovery and, and they're like a head of compliance or head of information security and you're pitching them on your new uh, product. Th this is going to alienate them because you're yeah. showing them, wait, do, I know these things. Why are you talking to me like I'm a child? Right? So that the, the method that works for one audience totally doesn't work for the other. My guess is that you've got people who are subscribing to your newsletter who are, you know, in bucket A versus those in bucket B. And when it comes to like that industry jargon, you're just going to have to pick a lane and go with it. You do. I, and that's the thing. And it, I try to structure the newsletter in a way that there's something in it for everybody. That's the holy grail here. And yeah. you just hope that if it's not at the top above the fold, they've got enough interest to go below the fold and all that. But it's 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 a remarkable learning journey and it's with anything like that's i view the newsletter as an educational thing more than like a marketing or or anything it's not it's a, i'm learning with you and let's do it together yeah. i might be a little bit out ahead of you so i'm still learning how to talk about it to go back to the Feynman technique it's a forcing yeah. function for me to exercise that every day it's like okay yeah. i've got to understand this enough then be able to communicate it to someone. So you've just finished a hundred days of, of writing this newsletter in a row. First of all, incredibly envious that you've been able to do that. And, and I struggle with the concept of a newsletter, although I have a regular newsletter as well. In particular, in our field, I struggle with it in terms of like the f giving a stuff away for free versus not. But I do agree that getting your thoughts on paper is one of the most effective learning methods and holding yourself accountable with an audience is too. So even when you're giving it away for free, there is absolutely something you are getting from it. And again, yeah, you could keep a private diary of this, but it doesn't really hold yourself accountable. Plus amassing an audience, I think is a great way to figure out, am I doing this right? Do people actually respond to this? It's a great way of checking yourself. Oh, totally. Because we're all full of BS half the time. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a great check on like, whoa, am I thinking about this right? Or am I not? I might be coming at this from, from my bias, my assumptions. We all have them. Are these shared or are these unique to me? And listen, I believe, and I've said this before, I think in Brainiacs, if not on LinkedIn, the newsletter is such an untapped potential. I believe every lawyer should have their own newsletter. And I think there's enough capacity to market it for them to do it. Now, what I don't want is 100,000 really crappy newsletters, but I think the way to think about a newsletter and to be thoughtful about it and what I've tried to do, it is such a rich way to engage a client base that is has a moat around it. To your point, the audience, it's a moat. 
Listen, you know what Brainiacs is now. The industry knows what Brainiacs is now. I've only got 2,100 readers, which is nothing, but that's 2,100 people. And I would say 2,000 of them had no idea who Josh Kabicki was. Listen, the branding is incredibly strong. We had a, a webinar um, that I recorded with uh, Jason Anderman and I think Ken Rubenstein from Google a few weeks ago. And people were asking on the webinar, they said, how can I learn more about this? And Jason, who reads you regularly, he's the, I think, head of legal at, so he specifically mentioned yours. And like, we were, I was in the queue giving people the link to Brainiac. So it, uh, you've, you've definitely gotten out there. Do you have like one time of the day where you're writing? It's so funny. I didn't, I wanted to naturally kind of flow into it, but this goes to accountable. When I did the hundred days, I had to ship a newsletter every single day. I picked between six and 6.30 PM Eastern because it's early enough still in the, in the U S time zone, but my readership is global with that. This is a global phenomenon, generative AI. So I'm in Australia. I'm in Asian countries. I'm in all over UK. And I'm like, readers in Israel. Right, exactly. So it's like six o'clock Eastern is the morning for those time zones ahead of me. So I had to show up every day. And at first I was just working on it all day long, to be honest with you. I mean, I was like just spending five, six hours. I got it down to about two to three hours every day. So by 3 p.m., that's how fresh it was. I mean, it was literally fresh because the news cycle would move so fast and I was scooping a lot of the other AI newsletters out there. And there's some great ones and they're awesome. But because of my cadence and because of when I was sending, I could scoop them and get new, fresh news in there. So I'd start at 3 p.m. and I would literally write until I had it edited, proofread, and then I hit send. So let me give you the background. My head of operations, Nina, is one of like, I think the actual experts uh, on AI because she reads and consumes more than anyone I know in the world. We, we have a, a company WhatsApp going and she's putting links out there every single day. And one of the newsletters that she's reading every day for the last three months is Brainiacs. And she mentioned it to me and, and then she said, yeah, that's Josh Kubicki. I'm like, no, how, how can that be? How would I not know about this? And so I got referenced to go read it by someone, you know, who wasn't even me and I've known you for a while, but by the way, like, I think for the podcast folks, maybe you want to give people a little bit of background because you actually have worked in big law firms on the business side. T- tell us a little bit about like where you come from. Yeah, I'll do it real quickly so as not to bore your listeners. I started life as a practicing lawyer in-house. So I went in-house out of law school. I was really on the business side of in-house. And before legal operations became, so I graduated more than 20 years ago, legal operations wasn't a thing. But that's sort of the, the mode in which I operated. I was a very junior lawyer in at Bell Atlantic, which is now Verizon, on the antitrust stuff. And for a whole host of reasons, which I won't go into now, I got a very fast, accelerated track on what the business of law, what a legal in-house team functions, what their value proposition is to the internal business customer, how they view outside providers, whether that's technology providers, law firms, so on and so forth. I left that, as I said at another point, to go do a documentary film company. I had a creative itch. You get poor fast doing that night student loan. So I came back (laughs) to the law practice within 18 months, but made three films in that time. And I found myself working. This is the beginning. This is before e-discovery happened, before that term was even coined, if you can believe there was an era. And I was working for a legal services company uh, at the time, managing large uh, document reviews. So lawyers and technology and the review platform, like we used to bundle that all together. We'd even actually go get the real estate for the law firm to house hundreds of lawyers. And I sort of perfected a version of that, a model, and grew it to be very large. I got sued for $20 million. That's how large that business was valued when I left. A typical sort of when uh, someone leaves a, a, a company, you know, non-competes and all that, nothing nefarious. We settled and all that. But I share that story because $20 million worth of value. That unlocked for me, that moment, scary moment, an awesome moment, because I realized how much untapped value there is in the legal market when you re-engineer the business model of legal services. When that opened up in my mind, that started my whole career of being 
maniacally focused on helping lawyers and business professionals, firms large and small, and practice groups and in-house teams to recognize that if they master some very easy to master things about their business and service models, they have the opportunity. They don't have to exercise it, but they have the opportunity to unlock some serious growth, value, whatever sort of metric you want to use. And that's why I became a law professor. And that's why I've been a chief strategy officer for a large AMLAW 100 firm. I've been on this mission. I say maniacal. And it's not for everybody. And in those early days, the market was very, very small for people that wanted to talk to someone like me. Then over time, as we enter the modern legal era, what I call those conversations are more sought out. Now yeah. enter generative AI. I didn't view it as a technology that's like, oh my God, I want to learn all the bells and whistles. I was aware of AI before, but when generative AI popped immediately, I was like, this is a business model device. And that's my bias. I was like, holy cow, this is now something that's going to democratize the ability of legal services providers to not just dip a toe, but experiment in a meaningful way with their operating model, with their service model and all that. And once I put that together, I was like, oh my God, there's so much to talk about and learn here. So that's sort of what led me down this path to Brainiacs from yeah. law school to here. And it's interesting because I, I very much believe in the wisdom of crowds and I look at the legal industry's reaction and the broader reaction to chat GPT and to generative AI and the understanding that, wow, this is really going to change things for legal. Now, oh, I said wisdom of the crowds. One of the things that I do now when I speak, I, I usually will ask the audience, have you followed you know, legal tech or legal AI over the last five years? And a couple of hands will go up and then I'll say, or have you been closely following chat GPT and the development of generative AI? Every hand in the room goes up. Okay. The audience sizes at webinars that I'm doing on generative AI are exponentially larger than the typical webinars that we've been doing. And all that's happened is the audience has snowballed. This is so front of mind for our profession, because I think people look at this and just go, wow, this can really be impactful. Now you're talking about it mo again, mostly on the business side. This is something that I've I, I kind of I, I call it more like on the administrative side, but I think that it, it kind of gets close to the business side. But one of the things that I've heard from lawyers already about generative AI is or in, and more so online, less in, in, in actual conversations, which is, oh, the hallucinations right. or, oh, it's going to make this mistake. I can't have it draft, you know, an, a, an agreement. I'm like, OK, I get it. You don't want to have to draft a contract. But one of the examples that I love to give is. Have you ever tried copying and pasting text from a PDF to a Word doc, right? This is one of the most frustrating experiences. It involves right. like backspace, enter, backspace, enter, backspace. Okay, you can just take that text now, drop it in the chat GPT, say this, and it knows immediately what it is you're it's showing it, and it knows how to clean it up in a second. And I think there's just so many administrative tasks that you can be doing throughout your day, not to mention personal tasks that you might have had to stop your work and, and get something done. So much of it can be helped with these tools. It's okay. It's not like draft me my brief in favor of summary judgment. Yeah, that no one's telling you to do right now, but there's so many exit ramps between that and I'm not using AI at all. But, but I think that there is a basic understanding that, wow, this has really massive potential. What have you focused in on, like on the business side? Why do you think that? Because I, what I was describing is more administrative tasks, but you're thinking about it as like on the business end, where do you see that potential? Well, I think, I think it encompasses what you're talking about, right? I think it's that micro personal use space of just productivity and pain in the butt stuff that once you're comfortable in this domain, you intuitively, I, and it sounds like you do, you intuitively have already worked a, a text-based AI tool into your workflow, whether that's OpenAI's ChatGPT or GPT-4 or Bing Chat or Bard or some of the other ones, yeah, Hugging Face, and we won't go into the, the, the details of all the other ones that are out there, but that is absolutely, there's a very micro level of personal adoption that I believe has to happen first. 
because in people talk about magic and they talk about hallucinations and and all that it's like you've got to experience those things in multiple iterations to understand and i think without getting into it too deeply my biggest challenge when I'm talking to anyone and talk about interest, we got a, I'm doing a, a webinar for Clio coming up over a thousand registrants already, yeah. which that just doesn't happen. I mean, it I mean, doesn't Clio happen. Those, these, the, the numbers, the numbers are wild. They're just bonkers. Right. But it's like, how do I get fingers on the keyboards? Like, so whenever right away, I'm trying to get the listener or the viewers fingers on the keyboards to work with this stuff. And then, I always talk about how to think about this. And, and we've been trained by Google to think in terms of a search bar. And right, that's but this is so different. This is polar opposite. It's completely, but it's so, it's so weird for people because they see the chat window and they think, oh, this is like Google. And then they get the garbage yeah. and then they get the hallucinations. And it's like, this requires more thoughtfulness. But the awesome thing is it's a hundred X better output, right? It's like, yeah. So, so yeah. no, 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 I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, by the way, it's so interesting to me. We have so many Venn diagram overlaps in our interests. So I don't know if you know this, but like I do quite a bit of video work as well. We Steve. just did our first major video production with an Amlaw 100 firm this year. It's, a lot of that stuff's going to be start to coming out soon. I'm really excited about that. We, we've got the, the AI stuff. We've got what I want to get to eventually is the idea of starting your own practice and the entrepreneurial lawyer, which I think actually goes in with all of this. But just go, going back to the point about chat GPT and about the inputs and thinking about Google, it's really interesting that you say that because I say that Google is the top legal tech tool of the last 20 years. Right? If you, yes. I, I remember being, I was Google shamed by a senior partner at Schulte. I remember that I tell the story all the time. Andre Weiss gave me my first review my first year as an associate and I got like good marks, but he said, one thing is, you know, there are partners who've said you could probably work a little harder to get the answer before going back to them with a question. Very, very typical, you know, feedback yes. that a first year associate gets. But then he said, listen, have you tried Googling some of this stuff? And I'm like, oh my gosh, here is a guy in his sixties telling me fresh out of law school to use basic technology. And he said, a lot of the time you might get the answer. And so I understand the comparison to Google. Chat GPT feels to me much more like Google than it did like any of the any other legal tech tools in terms right. of its like wide cultural adoption. But you're right. Putting Google, like Google, you're supposed to put very, very little text because you don't want to come up with a bad match. And on the chat GPT side, I want to give it as much context for my goals, what I'm trying to produce, who asked me to do this, why they're doing it. Because like you said, the outputs are simply amazing if you give it that kind of information. Totally. Uh, just real quickly, use case just this morning in my workflow. So I am working with a law firm and coming up with an education program related to this topic. And, you know, I customize some things for law firms and all that kind of stuff. So I just like, I just had a bunch of notes. I have my core stuff that I teach, but I had a bunch of notes based on what they want to accomplish, who, who the student's going to be, you know, inside the law firm and all that kind of stuff. So I took my chunk of content and then I added my notes specific to the law firm. And I said, I asked GD, G, chat GPT, GPT-4 to be specific, please use both these pieces of content to draft a comprehensive syllabus. And in 30 seconds, I had a complete syllabus. Now, yeah, I prompt what a syllabus is and all that, but so that prompt window is literally a page, right? So again, this is not Google. It's a page that I constructed in a notes or a Word doc, however you want it, or a Google doc. The prompt, I put all that stuff cut and paste in the, into GPT-4 and voila, in less than 30 seconds, probably 15, I have a 90% comprehensive, complete syllabus that I simply then put into my PowerPoint. I refine, I edit, and in literally five minutes, I was on a call like this, walking the client through the syllabus. So what I've sort of come to is the best way to think about chat GPT and prompts and prompting because you know, everyone's now, does this mean I need to hire a prompt engineer? It's like there, there are some specific prompt engineering skills because like you go on Reddit and you'll find like these 
insane oh prompt. That's okay. Like like the do anything now that everyone was using to jailbreak yes. GPT in the early days. I get it. There's like some specific stuff, but I think the idea of hiring prompt engineers is like, no, what you need to do is just look at this thing that you're working with and pretend there is a very, very, very fast working, smart human on the other side but speak to it that way. Number one, your own user experience becomes so much like more fun and seamless and delightful because you actually feel like a very human experience with this thing. And second of all, when you walk it through that way, it tends to produce better. So as an example, a lot of people will just kind of give a prompt to go, you know, go do this. A lot of, when I'm starting with chat GPT, I'm very often walking it through and saying, Hey, do you understand this concept? Oh, you do. Okay. I've got a project. I want to first give you a couple of pieces of information. Don't do anything with it yet. Then I'm going to explain. In other words, I walk it through the same way I would with a human. And I find that, the, that as a result, the experience is amazing because again, it's all the same steps that I would walk through if I was telling an actual person to do it. The outputs are a hundred X the speed and very often actually just much better than someone who is my assistant would, would give me. So I, I think that like that idea of relating to if it's as if it's human and very often I'm, I'll joke around with chat GPT. Awesome. You're the best. You are magical. You're a beast chat GPT. I love to do that. And I feel like I get a much better experience oh. doing that than if I were just to, you know, draft my contract. Right. That's that that's where I think people like have a very bad experience with it. And if, if you if you're if you're having the sort of delightful like, oh, my gosh, every single day, I'm like, I cannot believe my eyes. I simply cannot believe it did this. I think you have that experience if you're relating to it more as a human. I completely agree. And, and, and to give the, the viewers or listeners to this sort of how I sort of think about it and what I sort of help others on. And, and it sounds kind of silly, but hear me out. So I just. I call it pick your kick. So it's P-I-C. Pick your kick. Pick your kick and kick as in sidekick. So I'll get the P-I-C, but there's three sidekick modes that you want to think about. And these are not the definitive ones, but they're helpful. And it goes to your point. The first one is an intern or an assistant. Simply treat that chat window as though a text window, you're texting with an intern or assistant, yeah. right? They're going to need context. They're going to need goals or why is this? And, and treat it like that, like you're actually texting them or sending them an IM. And you use an intern and assistant for certain things. The second sidekick is the coach or mentor. Right. So the same thing you want to you want a second set of eyes on something. You want them to stress test something. You want them to poke holes. You want to test an argument. You want to play a negotiation. You want to just get some personal insight. Pretend the coach or a mentor is on the other end of that chat window and you're just IMing them in Slack or Teams or even sending them an email. Just write it out and, and, and let chat GPT play that role. And it's powerful. The, the third one is the creator or muse, right? And it's like, I, I got rough ideas. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I got a, I got an itch. I can't scratch. Help me. And you sort of put it in this creator muse. And you can just say that, listen, I need a creator and muse right now. I, I'm, I'm working on this. I'm trying to figure it out. And that's very powerful. To your point, it personalizes. You've got to engage in a personal experience quickly just to, to to end that frame, the pick, the PIC, this is the biggest thing that people get in trouble with. And we've seen this. It doesn't give you the, there is no the answer. There is a response. <laughs> That's not the answer. So P a is response, not an answer. Yes. A P is progression. This is a progressive tool. It is meant to help you progress your thinking, pro progress your communication. I, it's meant to help you iterate something, right? It's incomplete. Well, why don't I try this? Let me take a left turn here. How do I take a left turn in this idea? Like, what does that look like? And C is completion, not like final work product completion, but completion of thought, completion of reasoning, right? It's a very powerful tool. So that's why I say, pick your kick. You just kind of keep, I need to progress this idea or I need to iterate or I need to like, what is the end point here? How do I complete this thought? And what one of those personas should I use that seems to give people a good enough grounding and framework to be like, oh, oh, I never even thought about using it like that. It's like, right. So I, I never thought I want to pick up on the what, what you just said. The key for me 
And because now I would say that I have a pro subscription, you know, I can't even imagine not having one insane. I, I I'm, I'm shocked. I like, I am genuinely shocked when I find out there are people that don't. And my right. key is I want to prove to myself that chat GPT cannot do something before I assume that it can't. And that's what I tell people. You think it can't do it. Just try just see what it comes up with. Let it be the one to tell you I'm a large language model. I cannot do that. Right. So I think that's like one of the keys is that people, I think, never use it because they say, well, I can't do that. It generally, it, it can do a lot of things that you wouldn't suspect it can be able to do. And then you get to this point. Where you're like, no, I genuinely believe it's going to get me there. And. I think once you believe that and you have that firm belief, you're not afraid to go through a couple of revisions with it. And I think that's yeah. the other place where people get frustrated. Like, well, I just, it just did it, but it didn't do it. So tell it, explain to it. Okay. But it, it, you didn't do this the way I wanted to. Can you go back and do it again? I never have to get more than about four or five pieces of feedback deep, which I think is what I would probably have again. If I hired an intern or an assistant, I would probably have to do five versions with them. The difference is that five versions might stretch over three days as opposed exactly. to here. It's bam, 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 bam. Yes. The other thing I think is if you will do the first output and then let it get moving, that's where I see huge results. So as an example, I'll take putting together a case study. And I want to have a case study, which is the full case study. But then I also want to have, let's say, a couple of like, if I want to put a slide together that says representative client work. So here are like 12 different clients I've worked with. And it's not going to be a full case study. It's just going to be little snippets. Right. What I will do is I will feed the first case study. I'll give a case study. And I'll say, here is what I want to come out with as a much you know, smaller little snippet. Here's the case study that I worked from. Now I'm going to give you eight more just like that. And, I, and now I'm not even giving you the, the full case study. I'm giving you just the sort of brain dump of facts that I had. I want you to create a case study like the first one I created. And then for, that, for each of them, also create this sort of smaller snippet. If you do that first one really, really well and you show it. And like again, I'll, what I'll do when I prompt it is I'll say, do you understand how I got from this case study? To this one and chat GPT will say, yes, what you did is you, first of all, you anonymized it. You took out the sort of nitty gritty details. You made it much more punchy. Okay, great. Now apply those principles and do the same thing to these next 10 case studies. That's where you can see, I think, incredible, incredible results. And it means you've got to sort of put in that first swing. Yes. But then you can back off. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's priming. You're priming, right? So that's your priming. Uh, the, the model, not the actual model. You're just priming that chat session with information and context that the memory of GPT-4, chat GPT, can keep in its memory. So, yes, and it dissects all that. Remember, this is, that's, what it, that's what it does. It's dissecting every word in relation to every other word so it understands language in a level that we can. It's parsing it in a number of ways. So when you say, do you understand what I did there? you're playing directly to its strengths. It has dissected that content in so many ways you couldn't possibly even imagine. So of course it knows exactly what you need and how to templatize that and inform its next response to you. So one, one of the things that I, where I described our Venn diagram overlap of interests is in the entrepreneurial attorneys. So let me give you a little tiny bit of context about how I've been thinking about this because I'm sure you have been as well. You've been talking about for a while that it might make sense for more law grads to leave school and as quickly as they can start their own practice. And to me, when I'm looking at the AI revolution, I'm trying not to just figure out like, okay, how can AI be used? But in a world of AI, what decisions might someone make that they would not have made in a world without AI and large language models. And to me, one of the decisions you might make today that you would not have made seven months ago before the release of chat GPT is you might start your own practice or you might leave your bigger law firm to start your own practice. Why? Because today the infrastructure of a large law firm is not necessarily something that helps you with your practice. On the one hand, 
you don't really need the real estate anymore because half of the firms in New York are sitting there empty, right? So that the idea of having the office space is less right. important. Now, will people go back? Yeah, they're going to go back a little bit, but not the way they did beforehand. So that's already not as critical. Second of all, the army of attorneys that you have to get your work done because leverage is so important because as you've described before, and this is an, I got this from your course, leverage is so key to the big firm model. The idea of one partner who's basically out selling, billing maybe a thousand hours, but has associates who are going to bill 20 to 2,500 hours a year. That's the way you have to make money in a big law firm. I think there are going to be plenty of, of senior attorneys who just say, you know what? I don't need that anymore. I don't need that infrastructure. I don't need that army of attorneys. And I think we might start seeing a movement. On the other hand, from coming out of law school, the way I look at it, and again, I'm priming you because I know you've thought about some of this stuff, So I'm, but I'm giving you my background where I'm yeah. thinking about it. It seems to me that there are going to be a lot of lawyers who come out of school who say like, yeah, I'd love to go through a mentoring process of working in a big law firm, but there's just only so many of those jobs. And to be honest, I think I can probably get the mentoring and some of the baseline education from ChatGPT. I mean, it is like having practical law company on steroids. You know, it's so I, you know, all these tools that you would have only gone to a firm because you would have thought, I just don't know how to do that yet. How, how am I going to figure that out if I've never, if I don't have precedent documents, if I've never done this? I think, again, not everyone, but I think there's been a major friction reduction. And we might start seeing a lot more lawyers either peeling off or just coming right out of school and starting their own practices. Do you share that vision? Oh, it's so. Yeah, I not only share that vision, again, I share that mission. So, yeah, not anything bold. I don't think this is a bold prediction, but I put it in the last edition of Brainiacs and actually... It's a uh, Bold Duck Studio. It's a Bold Duck Studio prediction. It's Yeah, exactly. There you go. The home of boldness. That I think within one year, we will see a law firm emerge that is 50% or more operated and legal service delivered by generative AI or AI. It um, almost makes you want to go back and start a firm right now. There's like a part of me, right? That like, I'm, I, I'm tempted. like, wow. I'm back. Honestly, I'm tempted. I've got actually working on a project right now in early days. I've had this idea. I've got in-house counsel interested. I've got some law firms interested. It's for law students, but it's to create a teaching law firm that is all focused on the use of AI and doing this to augment what law schools will not be teaching anytime soon for a whole host of reasons. And I'm not, I'm not crapping on law schools. There's a lot of systemic obstacles that they have to, to navigate in order to get ahead of this or just catch up rather. Law firms won't mentor in this way because law firms are, are learning right now or ignoring. And so there's this bridge that we have to equip to your point. How do we scale mentorship, right? How do we not just mentorship in how to practice and behave like a lawyer? Those are very key things that I don't want to diminish and still very human to human. Okay. But Teaching the business of law, there's not too many lawyers I'd want to be mentored by out there on the business of law because they just don't know how to run their <laughs> right. practices. And it's not their fault. I'm not lawyer bashing. They weren't taught this stuff in law school. No one. It wasn't. No and, one, and it's not been necessary to the growth of their career. No, no, it has not. There's so much upside and margin in legal services that can be highly efficient business models and still return value to the partners. That's why we have them. That's why that's why they've been successful because they're rich enough. And to get rich more exponentially requires a lot of work that no one really wants to do because I'm rich enough. I get it. Yeah. Like I get it. Like who does want to do that? So I do think that we're going to see that happen. And here's the other thing, just to kind of depart quickly. We know that there's a massive peak of retiring age people here in the US and probably around the globe that are looking to retire in some time horizon of five to seven years. In the US specifically, that's certainly profound and there's a peak and lawyers, remember the majority of legal practices are very small in the United States. Like the big law gets all the headlines, but vast majority of lawyers are practicing in something like 20 lawyers or less law firms throughout, yeah. the, throughout the US. They're horrible at succession planning. 
there's no exit strategy because law firms haven't ever been viewed as a as an asset that carries you know extrinsic value on the marketplace to sell and we have the ownership restrictions and all that kind of stuff so we're going to have more and more lawyers retiring or dying at their desks which is the morbid reality of how a lot of lawyers end practice they deceased in their office those clients are gone the towns they were serving are, are are now without one lawyer and so part of this is Okay, there's that problem. I, I know brokers now. I've done a lot of work in this space. How do we look at the law firm as a transferable, divestible asset that someone can buy? How do we do that? And I'm not talking about Arizona and Utah. Yes, that's in play. But from a lawyer-to-lawyer -lawyer transaction, we haven't added any liquidity to that market simply because we haven't paid attention to do so. So it's right there. Right. And, 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 and in an age where it's becoming... I would say almost more like financially cool to buy a business. This yes. is this oh, is a totally. this is a trend. Like it's so exciting, and, and people have realized, hey, this is like a possibility. So yeah, I mean, it, it would seem like this is a real option for younger attorneys and a, a great new model for mentorship and succession. Exactly, because now you give that aging lawyer a purpose, a social and emotional purpose to mentor a young lawyer. <laughs> They see the future. You give the, sorry, to, sorry to cut you off, but you give yeah, no. you give the young lawyer an incentive and a reason to start the firm. You exactly. know, one of, one of the partners at Schulte, who I'm still very, very close with, once told me, he said, law lacks what every other business in the world has, which is you start a business in order to sell it. None of our clients who, who start or invest in businesses, like that's their key goal is to sell the business, right? We don't have that. That makes no sense. And I, I think that- I'm Sorry, but that's, we don't, yeah. we, we haven't embedded in lawyers the fact that the practice of law is a noble profession. Yes, it's a profession. Yeah. That's not mutually exclusive to being a business. <laughs> you have customers, yeah. they pay you for services. To die, you have a business. To your point, we've done a horrible job of, recognizing that legal services are a business and in some, and I'm sure you know that in some circles, that's a shameful thing to admit. We're a business. Well, yeah. no, we're not. We're lawyers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to offend your sense of nobility, <laughs> but that's BS. You are a business because I'm pretty sure you send out invoices and I'm pretty sure you accept checks. <laughs> I'm cynical about that as well, because if it was such a noble profession, Ethics wouldn't be taught as a lip service course in law school, right? We wouldn't have this separate day for a, like the, the ethics exam you take for the bar. <laughs> I studied for it. I kid you like the actual bar. I studied the whole summer for oh, yeah. I dedicated MPRE, all my time. Yeah. The MPRE I studied for while driving down the West side highway, glancing at Cause we were in like bumper to bumper traffic. And I was like glancing at it while driving. That's how I studied for it did fine. Okay. Yes. That is where that's the role of ethics in our legal education. So if we are this great noble profession, we're certainly not teaching people based on it. We're certainly not prioritizing pro bono as if it's a noble profession. So like I, I have a really cynical view towards that. Now I would like to see, and this is kind of where I want to go with you now is on the education side. I would love to see a revamped, and I, I continue to think this is the biggest opportunity in disruptive or legal tech or whatever you want to call it, someone who can figure out how to reinvent the concept of law school. And I know you're a, pro a professor, so I, I, maybe it's, you know, maybe a, maybe a difficult discussion, to, difficult discussion, but to me, we should be rethinking everything about law school, and I think we could be comp doing classes that scaled where you've got classes of, a th of, of thousands at once, an entirely different model that didn't leave people sunk in debt, that focused a lot more on ethics. Ethical responsibility should be such a big, critical part of law school, working in clinics, doing pro bono. This should be what we're teaching during law school. I I'm not against doctrinals, but why are we still taking doctrinals in third year of law school? When you're in kindergarten, you color in workbooks, but by second and third grade, we have you working on like some math problems already. Like it it's so, it's so repetitive and redundant. So I think the move away from doctrinals towards more number one, like here's how you actually are going to run your practice. Here's what you're 
actually going to do. Here's how you're actually going to make it work. Because ultimately, talk about access to justice. There'll be greater access to justice when it's easier to, to build a practice, right? And run it oh, and no. have the time to do pro bono. The reason no one has no one has any time, right? So I, I think this is this could be a watershed moment, hopefully, also for, for legal education. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think this goes back to law schools. There's some there's a handful of law schools out there trying to do it, but they they exist in the current status quo system that is you know, I will say this, and again, I'm not speaking on behalf of the law school I'm associated with, so I don't want anyone to take this as implicating Richmond in any way. This is more global law schools because I've worked with These many. These tweets and do with... not represent the views of University yeah, of Richmond exactly. Law School. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes. People sometimes confuse, and it's understandable, the customer of law school. You'd say it's the law student. They're the paying customer. <laughs> but the But one, I won't say the. One of the customers are tenured faculty. It's a talent game. It's a brand game. It's a research game. The system's still designed to promote and invest in that segment, the tenured faculty segment of it. And the law students are starting to understand that they are a paying customer. I always always emphasized at the beginning of my classes, you're my customer. You're buying, you are literally with thousands of dollars, you will spend $10,000 for time with me. I've got to deliver that back to you somehow, right? You're a customer in this class. I'm not on some ivory tower podium here to enrich you with my brilliant thoughts. It's a modern legal era. You guys are going to enter that workforce either better prepared or less prepared. So let's talk about how I'm going to better prepare you. That's a, that's not an equally shared view, I would just say, in, in legal academic <laughs> circles. So I think the solution is going to be built outside of law school. And I'm so, working on some of that right now. So, um, yeah, go. So, well, I, I, wanted, I wanted to sort of come full circle here and, and because you talked about the customer and internally at Killer Whale Strategies, our reaction towards your newsletter has been, he's giving this away for free and he shouldn't oh. be. <laughs> it's too good. Now, I, I, I have sort of general thoughts on this is, and I, I'm, again, I've been giving my newsletter away for free basically until I can figure out, you know, how to make it so that I really think I, I can charge people. My challenge has been is that, the premium version of my newsletter is when law firms and or legal departments or a variety of other companies hire me to come in and brief them on key trends. Right? That's right. the premium. Yeah. And the problem is my information is hugely valuable to a smaller subset of people. I feel like if I gave that away, even if I charge, let's say $80 a year for it, because I've had a number of people, I'm sure you have as well, who've pledged to support yeah. my newsletter at about that amount, right? So I've, I've got that there. I've got like a, a sense of interest. However, you know, if I'm giving it away, let's say to 50 people, even for $80 a year, if I'm charging, you know, between five and $10,000 for a briefing, it's not really worth it. So I, I've really struggled with, I, I don't want to give too much away for free because I work, this is my profession. On the other hand, I do believe in getting the best information out there and, and understand that. And, and I, I struggle with the business model of it. So yeah. give, give me your, because I, I know I saw you're now talking about having some part of the letter of the newsletter to be paid. And I think you're going to move to Tuesdays and Fridays as your distribution yep. days. How are you thinking about the business model? of the newsletter and, and do you sort of struggle with that the same way that I do? Yes, I do. So like any good entrepreneur, I built first and learned from the market, right? So that was my goal. I will write 100 days. I will learn not only about the topic and subject matter, I'll learn about my customers. I'll learn the variations of the business model and the appetite for what they want to consume and how they want to consume it. So it was a big test. It was a big experiment. The reason why I'm okay with sharing, and, and this is something, this is why I do the free email courses and all that. I fervently believe that you give away the what. You give away all the what, all the what, all the information. It's insanely valuable. Even if you're just doing curation, you're not doing insight <laughs> or analysis because nobody has the time. 
Nobody has the time to sift through the insight and information and data that you do, that you're going to do naturally because you've got a business, you've got a curiosity. That has inherent value. You package up, you share that. You get paid for the how. Great. You're brilliant, Zach. You've given me the what. I don't know how to transfer what into how in my context. What, can I pay you for that? That is my, that's my ethos. That's sort of my yeah. philosophy. And I just think your what, your content, if you're going to give it away, you got to go all in because people don't want to be sold to. And I pride myself on not selling anything in Brainiacs. I don't yeah. use it as lead gen at all because I respect my audience that much and I respect their time. And I think if you stay true to that, then you'll be asked, this is amazing. How do no, we to operationalize totally. this? Totally. And with, in, in my case, you happen to be squarely correct. I, I've also not done that. All, all, all of my new business this year has been from inbound, which is drastically different. And it's been, hey, we read your newsletter. We were hoping we could meet with you about this. You know, Pay what's your free. rates? So I have 100%. I have to give, I have to give away more. I, I think the, the challenge I have is I don't want to give away half of the information. Right. Meaning I think this is a lot of times what happens in the free version is you're giving away. You don't to, to your credit. You really give away valuable information. But I, I sometimes feel like, OK, I'm not going to write this next little piece that I sort of know because it's something that I only keep for kind of key briefings. But then I'm like, well, does that make what I'm saying not true? And if that's the case, I won't put it out there. I won't put right. out half information because I'm not going to give you something that's going to harm you. Right. right. I, and, and I struggle with that. I also think that there's something with like, when I pay for a newsletter, I tend to read it more. And and that's, so in other words, I, I pay for David Latz. I pay for Anthony Pompliano on, on Bitcoin. I pay for Stratechery. And the reason I can mention those right off the bat is I read those. There's read some them. good newsletters that I get that I probably don't read as carefully because I don't have skin in the game. So like that's right. something I also struggle with. But oh, I, I feel yes. like you're going to get this right in the next little bit because I think you have done a lot of the legwork up until now. Yeah, real quickly on that. So the next version, so I'll write the free version twice, and then I'm going to do a monthly deep dive, and that's going to be the pro version. And that's what that is. It's it's by not doing it every day, it doesn't mean I'm not working on Brainiacs every day. I still am. I'm just not oh, publishing every day. I'm doing a deep – I'm reallocating that time that I was writing the daily into a deep dive, very high, you know, highly detailed executive briefing, deep dive into certain topics – I'm going to release, release the first two for free to everybody so the market gets a taste. And not because look at how brilliant Josh is. I'm going to learn. <laughs> I'm going to be like, like oh, Stringer, so Stringer Bell giving out WMDs. Right, right, right. No, it's like it's like people are going to like come at me and be like, ah, this or I'll release it on LinkedIn. or something. And I'm going to get all I love critique. I love it. Right. Let the trolls come at me. Not that I get trolled too often, but it's like. That's all feedback, man. You're just giving me oh more. Oh my gosh, yeah. And then I'll put it behind a pro version and I'll test and I'll say, and this is the other thing that this goes into marketing strategy. So it's a limited release. I will do the first three at this price point. More than likely, the price will go up. So lock in now because anyone after you, the price is going to increase. So it gives me, because it, I don't know what the demand will be, right? I have yeah. no idea what the demand is going to be. I know the value and I'm going to severely underprice it according to its value because I want the content out there. I want people using it yeah. and saying, holy cow, you've got to get your hands on this. And you're still and you're still getting all those learning benefits that you talked about before. hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's we'll see. It's still an experience. Josh, how do how do people give, give people a couple of ways to find you? Yeah. So. I always LinkedIn is the best. So Josh Kabicki, go to LinkedIn. You can you can subscribe for Brainiacs right in my profile of my LinkedIn. That's where our industry is. I'm on Twitter at Jay Kabicki. Not a lot of people are on Twitter in our space. I wish people were more. All, all these links are all put in the description as well. Yeah, so many people. That's a whole other topic. How you can use Twitter to learn. Most people think it's a dumpster fire. It is. But if you unlock learning paths, the in best Twitter, dumpster, best dumpster fire in the world. It is. But there's massive amounts of wealth of knowledge in there too. And then my email, jkabicki at boldduckstudio.com. If any one of you gets the Brainiacs, just reply. If you just hit reply to any Brainiacs newsletter, that comes to me and only me. So that's probably an easy way of a reader. Just hit reply and I'll read it. 
He is one of our absolute favorites at Killer Whale Strategies, Josh Kubicki. Josh, thanks so much for doing this. And we'll get this up in a few days and look forward to being on the listening end. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Zach Abramowitz's Legally Disrupted. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. La, 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 everybody. La, 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 la.